0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the TraderCobb Crypto Podcast, where I have with me some um, breaking bank royalty. And we're going to get into exactly what I mean by that in just a minute, but it's Brett King. Now, he is the founder and executive chairman of Movin, which is an online banking or personalized banking application to help you keep an eye on everything that's going on within your finances. And it is an absolute behemoth. So Brett, thank you for being on the show. It's, uh, it's great to be with you and uh, thanks for letting me join all the way from New York City, baby. Yeah, New York City, but ladies and gentlemen, most of you, or I know a lot of you have got Australians, so we've got a lot of Australians in the audience, um, you'll actually note that after a long, long period of time, Brett here still has his Australian accent. Well done for that, mate. Well done for <laughs> that. We are covered- still relatively unique and you still have that accent, so that's good for you.
1: It 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 does work for me. My my speaker agent he reckons I probably make about fifteen percent a year more cash because of the 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 accent. So I keep it. But um, you know I did notice that uh, when I'm with an Aussie talking, it definitely comes out, out more because I lived in Hong Kong for seven years and Dubai for almost five years and in those two markets where English is a second language you do tend to see the you know the accent does get a bit thinner because yeah. you you have to articulate a bit more clearly and you lose a lot of the idioms you know so a lot of the uh the slang you know uh, yeah. for example, I remember when I was in Hong Kong and I came to the office one day and someone said you don't look so good are you okay and I said yeah I'm feeling a bit crook and they're like yeah <laughs> You're feeling like a thief. You know, they didn't, didn't get the new ones. So, yeah. You, know, so you have to you eliminate some of those uh, idioms from the language over time.
0: Well, I've been there, done that with my time away as well. You notice when you're over there, they say you've got the thickest Australian accent I've ever heard. And then when you come back home, they go, you're English. But, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. And my auntie always says, you sound so posh because I've lost my accent. But <laughs> yeah, I got that when I got back as well. Now, look, I want to get into what you've created here because it's – um. It's no small feat, but before we go into moving, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to creating this particular business? Uh, Well, I I started my career in Australia as a bike ripper, as a programmer um,
1: many moons ago. And but I, I sort of had that unique uh, skill um, of being able to communicate between business people and technologists, which is, uh, has has done me well throughout the career. I then in '99 uh, I moved to Hong Kong. At the time, I head up I headed up Deloitte's business practice in Asia. Uh, I was specialising in financial services and banking as a as an industry, you know, and had had a ton of experience in that, but really was doing the e-push. So I worked on the first stock trading platform called 2Cube in uh, Hong Kong at the time. I launched a bunch of e-banking, internet banking initiatives, um, you know, for uh, major players in the region. Did the first online credit card, oh, wow. you know, for, for uh, Citibank, you know, in the region, et cetera. So, you know, worked on a lot of that really grassroots uh, uh, digital stuff. In uh, 2005, I wrote a report for HSBC on the next 15, 20 years. It was entitled HSBC 2.0, and that ended up becoming sort of the, uh, the skeleton of what became the first book, Bank 2.0, um, which you're, you know, um, I've got some artwork up on the wall for. That was my first book, and it went off and, and did well. And then um, as I was on the book tour, doing the book signing for Bank 2, I was actually in LA at a networking breakfast held by this uh, radio personality, media guy out there called Ken Rutowski. And uh, I I was doing the book signing and people were asking me about what does a bank account of the future look like? And I was describing it. And there was a guy there from a venture capital organization, Clearstone Ventures, and then William Quigley. And he was like, yeah, but banks aren't going to do this. So who's going to do it? And, you know, literally two hours after that networking session, I went home and registered the domain from Move and Bank.
0: Uh, well, it's interesting how these things come about. They, they hit you in the yeah. face sometimes. And uh, sometimes you don't realize what you're about to sort of embark on, do you? They just sort of. Exactly. Just, so yeah, you so, want bank turn. When, when was that? When was it that you, yeah, I know so
1: you. I, I finished writing bank 2.0 on Christmas day, 2009. 2009. So I'd just come back from Dubai. I was spending some time between Australia and Hong Kong at the time before I moved to the U.S. in 2010. The book actually came out in April 2010. And I just did my sixth book, um, Bank 4.0, which was obviously, you know, one of the sequels to Bank 2. And that came out in December in the U.S., a bit earlier in, in, in sort of the rest of the world. And then 2015, you know, the most successful book I've done previously was actually sort of a full futurist book called Augmented Life in the Smart Lane. So that was... Augmented uh, Life in the Smart Lane.
0: Yeah. Um, so Augmented was the your, title. Then yeah. you're 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. Exactly. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. You got, you but that's, got that's been the creative, creative on that butter. one. You got some help on that title, didn't you? Yeah, that's the bread and butter though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, Excellent. Well, look, one thing I want to ask you, we're going to get into that futurist stuff because I'm really really interested in it. I really, really am. I want to know how you sort of title yourself as being a futurist and what it means and how you do it. But before we do that, I mean, with that, with moving, you have really been, oh, I'm going to do it. Making moves, I was going to say moving, but I couldn't, I wasn't going to go that bad. I do have two kids, so I am allowed to make bad dad jokes, but that would have just been next You, you
1: could have done the uh, themes, you know, the song
0: out of, uh, you know, what is it? I can't forget now. You, you like to move and move. Oh, in, I was going to do that. <laughs> that, was, that was on the tip of my tongue. My kids love that song. <laughs> but you've been busy and you've got, I mean, how many users have you got across the app now? So we
1: got uh, in in the US where we operate as a bank, um, direct to consumer with our own debit cards and so forth. You know, we we have a quarter of a million, you know, app users there. Some of them have debit cards. Some of them use it for aggregation, sort of like a PFM type tool. The behavior sort of differs. Some use it as their only bank account then uh, we have licensed our technology to other banks around the world. So Westpac in New Zealand, TD Canada, um, Yandex money, which is sort of PayPal in Russia, BCA, Bank Central Asia in Indonesia, et cetera. Um, And so we're rolling out right now. We're in seven geographies. Uh, We're rolling out – you know, to about 70 million users right now um, in those different geographies. So, And we've got two new geographies coming online over the next uh, you know, 60 to 90 days.
0: That's absolutely insane. And, I mean, did you find that traction with, with the uh, with the app and the bank and, and, and the whole business? Did, did you find it was um, instantly successful? I mean, you do hear these stories, but most of the time in startup land it's usually, you know, more often than not, you're just about to fall over before you actually get up. Um, you know, did you find instant success or did it take some time? No, definitely. Look, definitely took time. Um, you know, when
1: we launched, we were only the second sort of challenger bank in the world at the time when we launched and um, raising money for yeah. a challenger bank in those days was tough because, you know, you, you'd go out to Silicon Valley and they'd say, yeah, we're looking for the Facebook of banking and we want to really see something that's going to have a billion users. And we're like, do you guys understand um, a, about regulation in the financial services industry? You need a banking license? Oh, no, no, we don't think, you know. So they, they didn't get that. So they, yeah. they they were sort of looking for that sort of scalability. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the guys that would have invested in banks, you know, they weren't, they didn't really see the fintech opportunity. So it was a little early. Um, but, we, you know, we did a bunch of firsts. You know, we were the first uh, app to uh, LA to sign up for a bank account in an app. We were the first uh, app uh, to introduce a contactless uh, capability. This was prior to Apple Pay and Samsung Pay. We, we actually issued people with contactless stickers they could put on the back of their smartphone and stuff. So, you know, we, we broke some ground. But um, I can tell you, um, leading up to the Series A, And, uh, you know, I, I, I I know, you know, the, the sort of whole team took, uh, you know, we, we paused our salaries for a few weeks before the cash came into the bank. And then, um, when we did, we did a commercial deal with TD in on Christmas day, 2016, we actually received the, the cash or the day after um and, you know huge support from them they've been a really strategic partner for us but i think we you know we, our our monthly burn at the time was um about 600k a, a month and uh i think we had 16,000 left in the bank account when the the first tranche of 12 million bucks hit from td so and oh. that was and that was with, a bridge, bridge, with some bridge findings, financing we had in place as well. So, you know, look, um, anyone who tells you that uh, startup life, entrepreneurial life is easier, um, you know, it, is look- lying. Yeah, you know, and it's those moments where I guess it's make or break. You know, I know you hear stories with, from Richard Branson or Musk uh, telling similar stories about uh, you know the business uh, moments away from imminent failure, and then suddenly cash coming in. And so I
0: certainly uh,
1: can identify
0: with that. Well, um, you know what? Well, it, it's it's great to hear because it, it's it's really good to hear those stories from a point for which you know being an entrepreneur and having startup or a startup or startups. It is really tough. And, I mean, they've really glamorized it a lot these days. Um, you know, no one talks about they failure. they
1: the failure, though. That's right? what I
0: mean. No one talks about <laughs> failure. They always talk about the success, but it's the failure that leads to the success. And if mm. you don't fail and you don't, like, you know, if you're not on death's door, sometimes that's where your most brilliant ideas come from or or something drops in that you think, oh, I've been, you know, someone's been telling me that, but now I can totally see how that makes sense. And you can pivot and that's another very sexy word in your startup land too isn't it pivot everyone yeah. wants to. well we
1: did we pivoted i mean the the uh, licensing of our tech to other banks was a pivot um you know so um but we still kept the original business um and that's plugged along quite nicely but yeah. um yeah we, we we had to we had to go after revenue however
0: we could in in those early days that's it so the little boys and little girls are listening out there if you want to be an entrepreneur, certainly go for it. But do it when you're young, <laughs> because otherwise, <laughs> look—you got two right here. If you're watching this, look at our heads. Look at our heads. Okay, there's a reason for this. There is a reason, and it's not genes. Let me tell you. <laughs> oh, cool. Okay, look. So you've um, you're also a futurist, which we'll touch on in a second. One thing I've also found fascinating, as far as breaking ground goes, is that you are the first ever fintech podcast called Breaking Banks, right? You're the, back in 2013, you, you were way ahead. So I can totally vouch for you being a futurist because there wasn't a lot of people that were sort of seeing uh, the, the audio space developing in the way that it has done at that time. Yeah, in fact,
1: we you know we launched the podcast. I think there was a few other you know like Dave Birch, who's uh, with Consult Hyperion. Dave had a, a podcast he did sort of um, intermittently, um, but we were the first regular weekly fintech podcast. And then of course, six months after that, we launched on radio in the AM band in the US, and so we you know WVNJ eleven sixty and WGCH fourteen ninety and a few other AM stations where we syndicated. So you know we actually became the first fintech radio show wow. globally as well. Um, and so we're in 180 countries now through, through podcast um, with about 6.5 million unique listeners. Um, so it's, it's but, I, you know, even that, um, you know, when, when movement started to kick off, um, I'd been writing blogs every week and I just re- started running out of time. So my idea with the podcast was actually, I could just do an hour a week on the microphone it will save me time. Um, And so that's how I originally thought about it. Of course, it became this whole beast of its own, right?
0: Well, trust me, I'm very aware of how uh, how they work, mate. I, we started. I was told yesterday that I started the podcast yesterday. So, happy birthday to the Trader Cobb Crypto podcast! It's a full one year old now, and I mean we we were only in it for a couple of months, th- two or three months, and we were uh, as I was flying, uh, jumping onto a plane to New York for the consensus event for blockchain and crypto assets. Yep. Um, we were number one in the U.S. business category, um, which That's is great. That's as big as like I mean this is as far up as a podcast can get really globally Yeah, uh, with yeah ears exactly. on, on it, and um, I couldn't quite believe it. I mean, here I am interviewing Joe LeBan, who's the, one of the founders of. The oh, I know Joe.
1: Joe's been on my show a number of times. Joe's a good guy. Um, yeah, he's you know, a really good guy on the show as well. But uh, um, actually, last time I interviewed Joe was actually in Sydney at Cybost last year.
0: Um, no, I, I, I got him at Sydney. Yeah, last year as well for uh, one of his events here with um, Consensus Events. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's a good I, guy. I, I understand how quickly these things can take off. And uh, I was the same for, for me, I'm, I'm probably similar to you in the sense that I'm, I'm a communicator, I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who's, who can communicate things. And the reason we've had success, not just in the podcast, is that we can break things down that might seem really complex and deliver them in an, e- an easy to understand way for the average consumer, shall we say. Um, and, you know, writing pieces for me, I, I write how I speak. So, my business partner said to me at the time, I want to just do a podcast. And I said, like, you know, I'd love that. That would be good one take. Let's just get it done. Boom, boom, boom. I'm really busy all the time. As you know, everyone's always busy all the time. I would love to see my family more often. So, if I can save myself 15 minutes by talking. Yep. And anyway. you got a great face for podcasts, man. very much like yours maybe a couple of years younger than you so look let's touch now on um, on futurist and tie that in with the Breaking Banks podcast and guys you got to listen to it jump on board get stuck into it but um, I mean I'm here in this uh, digital blockchain you know digital currency space or whatever you call it digital distributed ledger technology digital assets whatnot now if you're talking about a show called Breaking Banks um, and, and you're a futurist I'd love to hear your take on, um, on the future of two things. One is digital asset and the other being Bitcoin. Uh, obviously, when I started breaking banks and
1: even when I wrote Bank 2.0, I wrote about Bitcoin. But, um, you know, the whole DLT stuff was still fairly new. Um, it was certainly starting to gain gain some traction. Um, uh, you'll, you'll laugh at this. I had Charlie Shrem on the show huh. um, the day before he went uh, in for his uh, enforced holiday. Oh, wow. He um, came into the studio and and um, very graciously uh, gave me some time. That same day as he came into the studio, uh, HSBC had done this massive uh, deal, $1.7 billion fine for uh, anti-money laundering. Uh, um, And so it was sort of really uh, bittersweet. Um, But um, I met Charlie, you know, in the New York community probably uh, early 2011. You know, Bitcoin was still very raw back then. Oh yeah. Um, uh, But but of course, a lot has happened to mature the sector. Uh, um, You know, we've had the rise of the token stuff that that blew up in a huge way. It's now normalized a little bit. But. Ultimately, I think if you look at crypto, um, you know, in respect to currencies, and we'll leave that away from sort of the database evolution. Yeah, I agree. Yep. Um, it, 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 really what it's about, I think, is the fact that um, – the, the markets as a whole are shifting from physical value chains, physical assets, uh, you know, physical commodities as the, the core underpinning to now we're seeing the emergence of digital markets and digital value exchange. And, and part of that is actually, I think, um, going to be a fundamental shift in basic economics 101 supply and demand curve because in a world where you have AI-driven ecosystems, mm. um, you know, the, the old supply and demand curve doesn't work because if you've got an AI, um, once that AI kicks in, then essentially with the exception of maybe processor cycles, um, you know, you, you can re- reach infinite demand Um, with that same supply capability with the AI. And so you don't generate increased labor participation as a result of increased demand. And that's a a core shift. So as that occurs, the market's going to have to look for value in different ways. And I think that's where we're looking for digitization of assets, digitization of commodities, data as a uh, you know as a, as a core value proposition for example, and the ability to sort of process that data that 's all part of this new um, digital market that is essentially emerging and So what we saw with the tokens is very similar to what occurred after the South Sea bubble, um, you know, with the formation of stock markets and the formalization of that. So it it, it does have parallels to be a futurist. You know, you have to really be a good student of history because you have to see how people have uh, responded to these things in the past and try and, find those same um, analogies. And and that's really what I take away from it is that very similar to what we saw with the foundation of the formal financial markets and, and um, you know, the way we valued companies in the past and the, and the way the commodities markets were created, you know, we see the same occurring right now in the digital space.
0: And do you see it, I mean, look, staying with currencies for the second, thank you for that. That's a very well broken down. It's very clear that you are a communicator. Uh, it's a very clear breakdown as to what the two different, um, I guess it's a fork in there. there. There's currency and then there's other technology that sort of branches off that um, with the data banks and whatnot. So, I mean, Bitcoin, of course, it has had a um, a head start. Okay. It, it's the big dog. It, it is the biggest market capitalization, the most frequently used, the most frequently understood. Okay. Globally. So, do you think that Bitcoin, if you're looking at it as a, as a startup, does it have a first mover advantage in the currency space, or do you think it still leaves a lot to be desired? And, and anything can be taken over if it That's falls asleep. We saw that with like the taxis, you know, with Uber coming through. But what do you think on that? Well, the the biggest, you know, w- when
1: Bitcoin came out, uh, I, I'm looking this up as <laughs> as we're speaking. You can- um, uh, yeah, John Matonis, that's right. Uh, speaking to John about this, uh, you know, at the time, and he he was um, you know the founding director of the Bitcoin Foundation, um, and uh, you know, I was saying to him uh, about if you're trying to replace currency, I get Bitcoin's value. You know, the value exchange proposition. If you look at the formation of physical currency, that was largely driven by the need to create a standardized value exchange by geography. But we live in a world today where value exchange needs to be global, needs to be at the speed of light on the internet and so forth. So it's fairly obvious if it wasn't Bitcoin, it would have been something like Bitcoin that emerged. But, you know, John was talking to me about, you know, uh, the sort of devaluation of currencies and the way you know, Bitcoin would be designed and moving to the right side of the uh, decimal point and you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, but the, the problem with Bitcoin from a design perspective was that uh, people kept talking about the million dollar Bitcoin and that produced speculation. And so it then turned into a digital asset instead of a currency because people were holding the money instead of using it. So it was acting more like gold than it was a US dollar. Um, And so that I think is a design flaw. Um, Now you might have a stage where you get to some sort of normalization in terms of value where then people say, well, we could use Bitcoin as a currency again um, and I think that, you know, I, I would love to see that happen. But probably what happens next is that, you know, um, Bitcoin 2.0, whatever that's going to be, and I don't think it's Ethereum, um, but, um, and, and I, you know, I, I think what's happening at EOS is interesting, things like that. But <clears throat> if you are going to start again from scratch, using the lessons we've learned from Bitcoin, you would really focus on utility. You would say, how do you get a cryptocurrency that, you know, where you can maximise utility, where people want to spend it, where people want to uh, use it as this underpinning of transactional activity?
0: So um, any plans to have a move-in token?
1: Uh, no, we looked at it, um, but in being a, um, you know, quote-unquote bank, in um, a, a, you know, the US regulated market, just even, um, you know, custody is sort of still got a question mark over yeah. it. Um, and so, um, yeah, we, we sort of, we, we are interested in it. Um, we did look definitely at a token. But. For us to really build a utility token into MoveN, given that we're dealing with financial transactions, was was a, a bit tougher than a non-related industry. Uh, my favourite token is actually probably. Um, uh, the Sun Exchange. I don't know if you you've heard of them, but they run a solar business. Um, they you know for every uh, kilowatt of energy they produce on the solar panels, they produce a uh, a, uh, a token. I think that's a great example of a, uh, a utility based token that, yeah. that is you know is with re- really clearly defined value that doesn't conflate conflate it with you know like a, a securities uh, mechanism, right?
0: yeah there's been a really big rise in that uh in that sector in the uh, in the energy sector renewables uh obviously you know we do have an energy issue definitely here in australia just you know it's basically price gouging it's a monopoly it's disgusting um they know it's going to end, so they're making as much money as they possibly can as fast as they possibly can and they're going screw you all we'll do what we want um because you know the gravy train is starting to come into the station, I think, as we do see the world sort of learning um, to be a little bit less stupid. I mean, I, I love David Attenborough's pieces. I have my kids watching him all the time. And at the end of his, um, the ocean one, I can't remember what it was called, Blue Planet, I think it was called. Mm. He said, never have we been at a time where we've had so much information uh, about the climate knowing that we're affecting it and never have we been at the time where we're in the position to actually make changes. And uh, it's up to us to make those changes. And I, 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 I get goosebumps when I watch him say that. Sitting there next to my daughter, thinking, "You're the generation that you, know, you and us, and yeah. it's us. If we can't contain this and fix this, it's all over for you know your kids. It's going to continually get worse." And we ask, "But, are coal, starting, is, but yeah. coal is good for humanity?"
1: No, no, I'm just joking. Um, it's forgetting <laughs> us where we are. No no no. no, no, no. No, look. Ultimately, right now, you have this again—the digital asset thing. Mm. Um, you know, solar is much better place to um, be considered a digital asset, right? Um, okay, you've got to work out storage problems and so forth, yeah. but. Um, the reality is solar is already the cheapest form of energy production, um, you know, available in the world. You know, it's, it's cheaper than all of the fossil fuels, natural gas, coal, unsubsidized solar. In 10 years, it's going to be one-tenth of the price, if not lower, than the cost of coal-based electricity. So how can an economy based on coal compete? It, it cannot. Oh. You know? And so, you know, and, and the, you know, Australia is the perfect no oh. it's the perfect economy for solar. There's energy issues there. Um, you know, it, you, you, I mean, you, you're paying what twenty six to thirty two cents a kilowatt hour yep. For, yep. for energy in Australia. Yep. I mean, we're we're seeing contracts written at one and a half cents right now for solar uh, generation. I mean, it's already one twentieth of the price. Yeah. Um. You've got solar silica, so you could do solar produ- solar cell productions there. Um. You know, it, really, it, there's no excuse. There's there's no excuse. Paul for Going down that that path, um, it, you know I, I i would
0: I would invest in solar if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot going on in Adelaide of all places right yeah. now. That, yeah, well, they are the fourth yeah,
1: Elon Musk got in there with with uh, the uh, the the storage, um, but there's some really interesting tech. Here's a futurist hat, you know, um, in terms of storage mediums that are uh, emerging pretty rapidly now. Um, molten salt. Um, which can generate uh, no, I read you know,
0: that
1: yeah you know, um, and ammonia based storage systems and other things like that, so there is a lot of uh, dollars being um, thrown at that you 've also got some really interesting solar tech um, Bill Gates, Bill, and Melinda Gates have uh, worked on uh, solar panels that, in addition to generating energy, extract clean water from the air um, using sort of the same tech. Um, you know, so th- there's, there's incredible uh, leaps and bounds being made in this. China last year, you want to know why, why um, you know, it, it's a problem for Australia, China's pursuit of this versus coal. China last year installed 96 gigawatts of solar generation capacity. That is the equivalent wow. of the entire in-store base of the United States in terms of solar, but it took the U.S. 45 years to get there. China did it in one year. So you know where the future is. If China is betting big on it like that, you know, and they've stopped all
0: new coal plant production. And China. they've cut coal uh, purchases from uh, their biggest Australian mine here and uh, the Australian government, uh, get this, this is how backward we are, okay? The, this is why you haven't come back. I get it. Uh, the Australian government has turned around and gone, hang on, we're just going to investigate whether that's legal or not. It's like, hang on. Because they said, look, we realise that there's problems in the climate, so we're going to sort of bullshit, you know, come on, let's cut the crap. You're doing it because it suits you, and that's cool. What suits you suits the planet. If it's in that realm, that's fine. And Australian government's now going, hang on, we're checking if that's illegal. It's like, come on, mate, you know, stop worrying about all this coal business that's going to die invest in your future not your next term and I think the issue is it's the short-term political mindset here in Australia because we've had you know we've had so many prime ministers and leaders in the last eight years I've lost count of them no dude um I live in the US where Donald Trump is president true true I guess yeah well you haven't really yeah Yeah. I suppose.
1: And, and climate change is a Chinese conspiracy, according yep. to, to Trump.
0: Okay, yeah. so, yeah, okay, my, my Just, government uh, might be, uh, well, let's say collectively but, government. Yeah. I'll, I'll but, put you them know, in it, that bucket.
1: You know, really the US and and um, Australia are, are quite exceptional in respect to their denial, denial? of climate change at the, institu- at the government level. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I think um, in the future it it will... Historically, um, it will be seen quite negatively, uh, unfortunately. Um, uh, but it, this is the opportunity for the next generation. It absolutely the generation is. We are- is. They need to be setting policy. They need to be involved in that. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's uh, where the change will come.
0: Well, this is what I find so interesting and exciting about this digital asset space, okay? So there's two spaces that I, that I look into or I was looking into at the time when we took this business on and started setting this up. One was gaming, because gaming was taking control and blowing the whole world up, and it still is. It's an amazing economy. It's an amazing new sports realm. Um, I'm still blown away by it. And one of my good friends who ran a uh, startup out of Australia, he's now actually gone into the gaming sector. He, he'd been a professional, semi professional gamer before. Um, but I was fascinated by that. Sorry? Who's that? Uh, his name's Jamie Skeller. Okay, cool. Yeah, um, I ran a company called Horizon State, uh, voting on the blockchain. No, I've
1: been um, doing some work with a, com- a startup out of Sydney called Play Up, and uh, they uh, they have a token, um, which is geared. Their token is actually the play chip that they can use on the gaming platform. But they do sports betting. But one of the the fastest growing uh, um, use on the platform is actually. Um, uh, you know the the Twitch uh, betting and stuff like that. Yeah, the, that's huge. The, uh, yeah, that's- the 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 gaming gaming associated sponsorship and betting and all that other stuff that comes along with it is is huge. You know, kids don't sit down and watch motor racing like the Bathurst five hundred. They nope. they'll sit down and watch a uh, a Fortnite championship. Yep. You know.
0: It's uh, it's it's a massive business. And speaking of kids, you just hit my next segue on the head. Uh, normally my shows go for twenty minutes to half an hour, but this is going very well, and I'm enjoying it. So. Bugger the rules, we're going to do what we want right here. But the final t- subject is to touch on this millennials point of thing because, um, I mean, that's the future, right? Let, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. You talked about the kids playing games. I mean, the kids I talked about before, the kids that are in crypto and, and, and blockchain, these are kids, kids, kids. Now, these kids are the kids of the, la- the later generation or the mid-generation baby boomer cycle, which is the first real – apart from the industrial revolution, the first real step up of a middle class wealth seemed not just in the higher echelon, the 1%, but that 1% grew out to a, you know, more people had access to money, education, growth, and, um, you know, prosperity. These are the kids of these people. Now, they're short, they've, they've got not much patience, they're pretty entitled, and they can be a pain in the backside of employ. employee. <laughs> but let me tell you one thing, they are the biggest... Uh, voting demographic moving forward right now. They're smart, they're powerful, they know how to use technology because they've had it in their hands since they were bloody born. So yeah. investing and being in business with this demographic seems to make perfect sense and you've got gaming, blockchain and cryptocurrency. Is that something that you sort of touch on as well?
1: Uh, well, I talk about it in Augmented. I talk about the, uh, the Omega generation, the last generation. Um, in terms of this cycle of baby boomers, Gen X and so forth. And, uh, there's a great, uh, Marshall McLuhan uh, quote, which says, I don't know who, uh, who first discovered water, but it probably wasn't a fish. And, and the reason I, I use that is that kids don't think of digital as digital, it's order to them. It's just around them and part of it. And so they're much better place to actually utilize this tech to think of these new paradigms and and do this stuff because they don't have to get over the traditional way of doing things. Mm. Um, And so you've got a lot of real creativity coming um, out of this sector with these uh, millennials and the Gen Z's that come after them um, where Their ideation process in terms of creation, their social collaboration, all of those things are quite different because of the way they've come into the world around digital. You know, we still have debates, you know, uh, you see it in the press all the time, should our kids be allowed to use their devices all the time and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, And the, the reality is if you look at history and the way we've adapted to technologies, you know, you know, even the radio or TV or, or, or whatever it was, internet, um, smartphones, you know, there has never been an example where the older generation has been able to successfully dampen adoption of technology. There's, in 250 years, we've not seen a single example of a company threatened by technology shifts survive unscathed. They either innovate or they're gone. Um, and so when you you look at these technologies like crypto or, say, artificial intelligence, and mm-hmm. we hear a lot of debate mm-hmm. about what's the future going to be like, it's almost like we're debating whether or not artificial intelligence should be allowed to happen. And yet if you look at the historical precedents, there is no example of where we have stopped yeah. implementing a technology like this and sort of said, we've got to have a think about it. Normally what we do is we go full bore ahead because the capital markets drive that type yeah. of innovation. And then we start thinking about, oh, well, wow, people are losing jobs because mm. of AI. What are we going to do now? You know, yeah. um, And so, um, and, and the rate of change is speeding up, of course. And so, um, but uh, I think um, if you tie all this in together um you can see this as hugely disruptive, but coming out of the other end of this, our kids go into a world that actually could be, you know, in in 30, 40 years time, very, very different place. Um, You're going to have healthcare, education, um, you know, basic needs, basically zero cost to provide that. So, So, you know, Diamandis calls this the age of abundance, you know, Um, but where technology provides this capability where this is just accessible. Uh, You know, we're going to start developing technologies to geoengineer the planet and undo climate change. These could be massive social programs or massive infrastructure programs on a global basis, sort of like the the New Deal, um, you know, after the Second World War, and we're talking about the Green New Deal in the US right now, but it could be a global initiative. And so, when you start thinking about things like universal basic income as a construct that comes out of this technology unemployment as a result of AI, you know, that could be deployed in these massive social causes like, uh, you know, uh, undoing the damage of climate change. Um, so, uh, you know, there's so much potential for this generation. And the one thing I love about this generation is they, they're much more connected with each other. Hmm. sure there is some tribalism that comes out of social but uh, yeah. i think they're much more socially aware uh, on a global basis and they're 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 much then they're, they're much less concerned about asset uh, capture than um, you know just having a great experience in life. And so I think, um, and a lot, you know, you'll hear a lot of baby boomers and Gen X say, yeah, but once they, you know, have to buy their own home and once they you know, start having kids, that's going to change. But I really hope it doesn't. I really hope that this next generation, particularly from a policy perspective,
0: um, takes those lessons. Into the live sort of- life generation. Exactly. And with that, I think that's a perfect way to wrap this bad boy up because that was a wonderful sort of summation of everything that we just covered really to a point of which you've got opportunity out there, ladies and gentlemen, you have the opportunity right now. We probably are at the most exciting period we've ever been in our modern day world or possibly humankind ever. Never has there been more opportunity. You can start a business from the home, from your home on a laptop. I mean, you can send currency across the world, not quite so much in an instant, but very, very quickly through digital assets. It's very clear what the issues in our world are today. So if you are a young entrepreneur, if you are not even young, but an entrepreneur, you've got the ability to do whatever it is that you need to do so go out there and have a cracker before you do that make sure you get across and you listen to the breaking banks podcast presented by the wonderful Brett King who is the founder and executive chairman of movement it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today Brett thank you so much for your time I know you're very busy uh, look it's it's my pleasure and thanks for the opportunity and um, yeah see you later mate excellent ladies and gentlemen thank you very much and uh, you keep warm out there in, uh, in cold New York, my man. Yeah, we just had six inches of snow last night. so It's hot and muggy, sticky here in Sydney. But anyway, we'll leave you to it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Bye for now. The Trader Cobb Crypto Podcast is hosted by Craig Cobb. All Trader Cobb courses, products and tools can be found at TraderCobb.com because experience matters. Just go to coinspot.com.au forward slash BTC 123. Views are of the advertiser, not Cobb, or the audio presenter.